Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to today's edition of Historical Figures. I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. If you want to listen to previous episodes of Historical Figures, previously Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths, you can find them all on your favorite podcast directory. Or on our website, parcast.com. That's spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode comes out every Wednesday. But if you subscribe to the show, you don't have to remember that. Today, we're discussing Leonardo da Vinci. The original Renaissance man. That's right. Leonardo da Vinci was a 15th and 16th century painter, sculptor, scientist, mathematician, inventor, engineer, and so much more. We owe famous works like the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper to him. And he can also be credited with drafting the first designs of many important modern inventions, like the helicopter and the submarine. Sure. Da Vinci is one of the most fascinating people in history, but as Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote about Hamilton, Da Vinci was also a, quote, polymath and a pain in the ass, end quote. When Da Vinci believed in something, he didn't let the law, the church, his peers, or the limitations of his time stop him from proving himself right. He sounds like the know-it-all in class who would always argue with the teacher. Still, we owe many of our modern inventions and some of the world's most renowned works of art to this argumentative genius. And to really understand da Vinci's legacy, we must first take a closer look at his life. Leonardo was born April 15, 1452, in the Italian province of Vinci. His mother, Caterina was a peasant and a laborer, while his father, Ser Piero, was a respected notary and attorney. As was not uncommon for the time, Caterina and Piero were casual lovers, uh, kind of like the ancient version of friends with benefits. Because of their class differences and the fact that neither Caterina nor Piero was interested in anything serious, da Vinci's parents never married. Therefore, young Leonardo was born a bastard and derived his surname from the region in which he was born. Illegitimate children were not uncommon at the time, and while they could inherit lands and titles, they could not attend public schools or universities. Da Vinci wrote in his early journals that his status as a bastard bothered him greatly. Society may not have made a big deal about it, but young Leonardo felt it held him back, personally and professionally. 
Both Caterina and Piero married different people of similar social standing not long after da Vinci's birth and wasted no time having legitimate children with their new respective partners. In fact, da Vinci's father would remarry four times in his life, and Leonardo grew up with 17 half-siblings between his mother and father. Whoa. As one can imagine, things were more than a little cramped in Caterina's home with her new family. Though she loved her eldest son, she made the tough decision to send five-year-old Leonardo to live on his father's family estate near Florence. There, he could be raised by his uncle, Francesco, and his grandparents. Young da Vinci must have been terrified of leaving home. After all, his father had been mostly absent from his life up until that point. However, once he was at the family estate, da Vinci blossomed. He was taught to read and write and was given basic math instruction. His uncle took a particular liking to the bright little boy, and though he was able to offer no further formal education, he instilled in young da Vinci a deep appreciation for nature and animal life. Francesco's influence is believed to be the inspiration for da Vinci's first known drawing, a pen sketch of the Arno Valley, and for the artist's choice to live as a vegetarian. It was around this time that da Vinci's father, Piero, began to take note of his son's gifts. As da Vinci grew, so did his incredible talent for the arts, and Piero saw an opportunity for Leonardo to make a name for himself. In 1467, Piero used his respected stature in Florence to obtain his son an apprenticeship with Andrea del Verrocchio, one of the region's most renowned artists. Verrocchio was the master of Florence's most well-known art studios. His work was coveted by the Medicis, a powerful banking and political family in the region. The Medicis are often credited with ushering in the Renaissance because of their devout patronage of the arts. Da Vinci could not have been paired with a better master, and he spent five years under Verrocchio, perfecting his sculpting and painting skills until, in 1472, at just 20 years old, Da Vinci's proficiency and dedication earned him admittance to Florence's Guild of St. Luke as an apprentice artist. Quite the accomplishment for such a young man. Indeed. His membership to the Guild allowed Da Vinci to collaborate with some of Florence's greatest artists and craft workers of the time. But there was a rule that apprentice members of the Guild could not take commissions on their own. Instead, they must partner with a master member. Therefore, da Vinci was still far from becoming the man history would remember. And though the young artist had been focused on his own career for two years, he was still very close with his teacher, Verrocchio. Verrocchio even reached out to Leonardo for help completing his painting titled Baptism of Christ, just like when Yoda used the hallucination in the Dagobah cave as a final test for Luke in Star Wars. Verrocchio believed that if da Vinci could put the finishing touches on the baptism of Christ, he would be ready to take on commissions of his own, and the other members of the guild would advance his membership, even though he had only been an apprentice for two years. A 1550 book titled Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects states that Verrocchio was so impressed with da Vinci's talent that he retired from painting altogether. The student became the master. It was definitely the beginning of da Vinci's long career, but it was also the spark that ignited his ego. Rumors of da Vinci's artistic gifts spread fast, making him popular with powerful families like the Medicis uh, throughout Florence. And it wasn't long before he received his first independent commission from the Scopetto Monastery in Florence. And in 1482, he began the Adoration of the Magi. 
Yet da Vinci never finished this painting, the first of many unfinished works, as he was called to serve the Sforzas, the ruling family in Milan. So he walked away from his first commission that easily? It wasn't actually that uncommon for Renaissance artists to leave work unfinished. It was a risk that buyers took. Think of it like finding the perfect outfit from an online retailer that offers no refunds. Many people would agree that the potential for an amazing outfit outweighs that of losing out on some money. The patrons of the arts in da Vinci's time were like these folks. They were willing to pay in advance for the next masterpiece, even knowing it may never be completed. The potential reward was greater than the risk. Mm -hmm. For most patrons, yes. However, Lorenzo Medici had been the one to recommend da Vinci to the Sforzas. Lorenzo was the de facto ruler of Florence at this time, and he was a close personal friend of da Vinci's. His powerful influence helped appease the Scopetto monks who had commissioned da Vinci for the adoration of the Magi, while da Vinci prepared for his move to Milan. The invitation from Duke Sforza couldn't have come at a better time for the young artist. Several years prior, in 1476, da Vinci and several of his friends were arrested in the company of a well-known male prostitute and brought up on charges of sodomy. Hmm. At the time, Florence had a police force called the Officers of the Night. This unit functioned as a kind of 15th century vice squad that followed up on anonymous accusations and made arrests. Even though it was not uncommon in the time for men to take male lovers, these relationships were meant to be kept a secret. Sodomy, after all, was a crime punishable by death in 15th century Florence. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com running. New Balance. Run your way. And now back to our story. Over the course of several anxiety-ridden days, da Vinci and his companions awaited their fate. Little did da Vinci know, his friends in high places were hard at work to get him released. Some of these friends included Lorenzo Medici and other members of the powerful Medici family. Their solid arguments... Or bribes and threats to would-be testifiers... <laughs> ...worked. No witnesses came forward to testify at his trial, and the charges were dropped. Despite having escaped a guilty sentence and an execution, the allegations greatly embarrassed da Vinci. Though he was fond of receiving attention for his art, he preferred to keep his personal life out of the public eye, and he was eager to leave the gossip that had followed him around Florence since his trial in 1476. He did just that. In 1482, young Leonardo left for Milan to finally answer the summons of the Sforza family. Milan suited da Vinci extremely well. He was kept busy and was therefore able to leave the gossip mongers of Florence behind him. The Sforza family employed all of da Vinci's talents, using him as their personal court festival designer. In this role, da Vinci was able to decide which musicians would perform, which foods would be served, which decorations would be used for all the major events hosted by the Sforzas. 
it was the perfect job for a man like da Vinci, who liked having all that power and creative freedom. They also put him to work as the family engineer, architect, sculptor, and painter. Wait, when did da Vinci become an engineer and an architect? Well, though da Vinci did not receive more than a basic education, he had a passion for learning. During his apprenticeship, he taught himself Latin and advanced mathematics and spent much of his time reading or drawing sketches. So he was more than qualified to serve the Sforza family. Exactly. And his first assignment for them was sculpting a massive 16-foot-tall equestrian statue in honor of the dynasty's founder, Francesco Sforza. In da Vinci's time with them, the family had come to think of him as one of their own, and the commission was meant as a huge honor. Da Vinci served the Sforza family from 1482 to 1499 and spent 12 of those 17 years creating a clay model for the statue. However, war had erupted in the region when France invaded Milan in 1499, and therefore the bronze that would have been used to complete the piece was used for cannons and other weaponry to help the Sforzas and their local militia instead. And to make matters worse, the clay model da Vinci had devoted over a decade of his life to perfecting was destroyed when the Sforzas lost the war to the French and Duke Ludovico Sforza fell from power just before the turn of the 16th century. With Ludovico held captive by the French, da Vinci and the remaining Sforzas fled to Venice. Da Vinci was disappointed to leave the Sforzas, but he looked back on his period in Milan with pride. In fact, some of da Vinci's most notable works were painted during this period of his life, including The Last Supper. Just years before his dynasty's demise, Ludovico Sforza commissioned da Vinci to create The Last Supper as the centerpiece for the family mausoleum. After he began in 1495, it took da Vinci three years to complete the work. But once he was done, it seemed everyone wanted a copy of the painting. Leonardo was finally getting the artistic fame he desired. The Last Supper was special to da Vinci because it was the perfect culmination of his two greatest passions, math and art. Though the mural may seem relatively simple to the untrained eye, it is actually a carefully crafted masterpiece. When painting The Last Supper, da Vinci used the rule of thirds, an artist's concept that divides any image into a three-by-three proportional grid. Research suggests that the human eye is naturally drawn to where the lines of each portion intersect. And da Vinci used these intersections as the locations for major areas of tension in his work. Most art critics make a point to differentiate between how calm Jesus is at the center of the painting, while Judas, Peter, and John on the left, and Thomas, James, and Philip on the right are anything but. Da Vinci displayed his true genius and took the rule of thirds to another level by grouping the disciples, each of whom was painstakingly depicted, in threes. It's no wonder the mural was an instant hit when it was unveiled in 1498, even though it was technically an unfinished piece, even to this day. But da Vinci's legacy is so much bigger than The Last Supper. Oh, that's right. I mean, we're just getting started. With the Sforza family out of power in Milan, da Vinci saw no reason to return there from Venice, where he and the other Sforzas were seeking refuge. Instead, he chose to travel from Venice to Florence in 1500, where he was welcomed back with great zeal. Many notable citizens in Florence had heard about da Vinci's Last Supper and tried to commission him for portraits and other works when they received word he had returned. But much to their dismay, da Vinci was more focused on his scientific and mathematical studies during this time. He believed studying these subjects made him a stronger artist, and he focused on his inventions. 
During his time with the Sforzas, da Vinci had already invented several impressive war machines, such as a gargantuan crossbow, one of the world's first tanks, and the battle chariot that had blades mounted on the sides. However, the battle chariot was the only invention that he followed through with building, and it was a massive success. Armies shuddered at the sight of the chariot, knowing it would likely take out many soldiers. On top of that, the chariot earned da Vinci a reputation as a gifted engineer. It was that invention that also introduced da Vinci to Cesare Borgia. Cesare was a well-known member of the House of Borgia, perhaps one of the most ambitious and conniving noble families in Italy at the time. The Borgias were kind of like a real-world version of the Lannisters from Game of Thrones. They placed members of their family in strategic positions of power and betrayed those who got in their way. Cesare saw an alliance with da Vinci as the most advantageous move for his military career, and by 1502, he had hired da Vinci as his personal military inventor and engineer. For the next 10 months, da Vinci traveled across the region, improving military fortifications and meeting with Cesare's important commanders to discuss areas of weakness. However, da Vinci was never purely a military man. In his downtime, he would practice the art of saper vedere, or knowing to see. In order to improve the humanism in his paintings, da Vinci eagerly delved into the study of human anatomy. He took his Vitruvian Man drawing, which he had completed back in 1490, and expanded upon it by conducting dissections of both humans and animals. Da Vinci was extremely passionate about anatomy, and he was responsible for some of the first recorded drawings of the cardiovascular and muscular systems and more. His hope was that his work would greatly impact medical advancements, and they did, but not as quickly as da Vinci hoped. These highly advanced journals were lost until the mid-20th century. They were discovered in a library in Madrid on February 13, 1967, and have been studied by medical engineering students around the world since. One of the journals included a sketch for a crude robot that was essentially a suit of armor designed to be manipulated using a series of pulleys. In 2002, a scientist named Mark Rosheim built a prototype of the robot using da Vinci's original design. When it worked, it proved that da Vinci had an extensive understanding of the interconnectivity of joints and how they affected human movement. Da Vinci's robot design was later used as inspiration for the first surgical robots doctors now use in many major surgeries. The other sketches, found in the same notebook, help medical researchers develop artificial limbs, synthetic organs, and contact lenses. Most of da Vinci's research was conducted on cadavers. And because there was nobody volunteering their bodies for science in his time, many of da Vinci's subjects were obtained illegally. When da Vinci caught word that a body had just been buried, he would sneak into the graveyard after dark and dig it up. He would then sneak the corpse back to his workshop for dissection and study. It was extremely illegal and would have landed da Vinci in some seriously hot water with the church, but it was a risk he was willing to take in the pursuit of scientific advancement. During his anatomical research, da Vinci also became extremely interested in the skeletal system of birds and the physics behind flight. He studied the anatomy of several species of birds and used the current in the local river to simulate airflow to draft one of the first sketches of a flying machine, also known as an ornithopter. The machine's wings would be operated by a person pedaling or rotating a hand crank. Mm. 
One wonders how he never seemed to be in short supply of dead birds. Hmm, maybe it's best not to know some things. <laughs> well, whatever his methods, da Vinci's study of birds led to many of his most advanced inventions. Over the course of his studies, da Vinci would be inspired to sketch ideas for some of the earliest forms of helicopters, parachutes, and submarines. It is not recorded if da Vinci ever built or tested any of his designs, but modern engineers have concluded that many of them would not have worked. However, in 2000, skydiver Adrian Nicholas successfully completed a jump using a parachute modeled from one of da Vinci's designs. Mm, impressive. Even though da Vinci didn't have the tools or materials necessary to see many of the other designs come to life, his ideas would give modern-day inventors the inspiration they needed to create some of the world's most important technology and machinery. It is awe-inspiring that a mostly self-educated individual could dream up such complex ideas. Absolutely. But during his scientific and mathematical endeavors, da Vinci could not resist the call of the canvas. He likely missed the attention and praise he received for his art as well. The Signoria wanted da Vinci to paint the historical battle of Anghiari, the event that secured Florence's control of central Italy in the council hall of the Palazzo Vecchio. Though he had yet to shy away from monumental tasks, this commission would be a massive undertaking. The Battle of Anghiari was 23 feet tall and 56 feet across, twice as large as the Last Supper. The Signoria requested that the painting depict three soldiers charging on war horses, and the group wanted the piece to complement Michelangelo's work in progress titled Battle of Cascina, which hung on the opposite wall of the council hall. The Signoria would lose out twice, however, as neither Michelangelo nor da Vinci completed their respective works. In da Vinci's case, it seemed that the artist was experimenting with paints, but when he found the results unfavorable, it halted his progress on the mural. No, that wasn't the only thing distracting da Vinci. You're right, you are. Da Vinci worked on the Battle of Andiari from 1503 to 1506, but during those three years, he was also seeing a special lady on the side. A special lady whose subtle smile has become known around the globe. Guessed it yet? The Mona Lisa. It's arguably da Vinci's most mysterious painting. Many people believe it is a self-portrait of da Vinci himself dressed in women's clothing. Sigmund Freud argued that the painting was a depiction of Caterina, Leonardo's mother, while others believe it is of a local courtesan known as Mona Lisa Gerardini. Historical records indicate, however, that da Vinci was commissioned to do a portrait of Lisa del Giocondo, the wife of a wealthy silk merchant in 1503. This leads most historians to agree that the Mona Lisa is likely Lady Giocondo. To further prove this belief, an Italian research team has been carbon dating and studying what they believe to be the remains of the noble woman. Their goal is to connect her genetically to currently living members of the Giocondo family and do a facial analysis to compare their faces to that of the Mona Lisa. Whoever she may be, the Mona Lisa changed the way portraits were done forever. Da Vinci's use of a half-length portrait of the subject gave the painting a more intimate feel. Da Vinci's attention to the background detail was also a relatively new concept in portraits. Instead of painting the sitter in front of a tapestry or other rather bland background, da Vinci chose to depict an incredible scene of nature behind Mona Lisa. 
The Mona Lisa gives us excellent insight into da Vinci's personality. Not only was it a testament to how deep his passion for nature ran, it also spoke to his respect for fashion. Da Vinci was known for preferring to wear the color pink to give his skin optimal glow, and his commitment to haute couture showed in the Mona Lisa. In one of the treatises he kept during this time, he wrote that art should never depict the fashion of the time, as it opens current generations up to mocking by its descendants. In his portrait of Lady Giocondo, Leonardo chose to protect the tight-fitted fashions of the time from future ridicule by dressing the subject in loose, plainly colored robes, as opposed to the traditional style of colorful, more form-fitting attire. The painting was so well-received that it would forever cement da Vinci's reputation as one of Florence's greatest artists. Still, the Mona Lisa was one of the last paintings da Vinci completed in Florence. But before we travel with da Vinci back to Milan and beyond, it's time for a quick word from our sponsors. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. And now, back to our story. In 1506, da Vinci was 54 years old. He now had a significant following of apprentices and admirers, but the polymath was never one to settle. Soon, life in Florence presented no more challenges for da Vinci, and he quickly grew bored. Milan seemed like the perfect escape. In an ironic twist, the French who had once pushed da Vinci out of Milan were now asking for him to return. The French had been in and out of control in Naples, Venice, and Milan since 1494. However, when da Vinci arrived, Charles d'Amboise, the governor of the region, felt secure enough with his reign to spend large sums on additions and modifications to his estate. In fact, d'Amboise wanted da Vinci to sculpt a large equestrian statue for the tomb on his Italian property not unlike the one that da Vinci had begun to craft for Sforza all those years ago. There was only one problem. Da Vinci was still employed by the Signoria in Florence for his work in the Palazzo Vecchio, and they were impatiently waiting for him to finish the Battle of Anghiari. But d'Amboise was eager to have da Vinci for his own project, and so he wrote to the Signoria, begging for them to allow da Vinci to travel to Milan. I can't imagine that went well, especially due to da Vinci's abandonment of the Battle of Andiati. Surprisingly, the group agreed. Da Vinci was quickly getting a reputation for not completing his commissions, but the artist would always answer the call of a bigger, more reputable challenge. Around 1505, he began traveling more frequently to Milan, only returning to Florence for brief visits. And it was around this time in his life when da Vinci would meet one of his best friends, most faithful pupils, and possibly the object of his affection, Francesco Melzi. Francesco's father, 
Girolamo Melzi, was the head of a noble family of Milan and had also been a military general under the Sforza family during da Vinci's tenure with them. Girolamo and da Vinci had remained in contact over the years. When da Vinci informed his old friend that he was returning to Milan, the general invited him to stay with his family. It was then that da Vinci and 14-year-old Melzi's paths would align forever. Melzi was the son and heir to Girolamo's fortune and titles, and while his good looks and charm made him quite popular with the older nobles in court, he didn't have many friends his own age. He was much more mature and intellectually advanced than his peers, making it difficult for him to connect with them. Perhaps this was the reason da Vinci and Melzi were so drawn to one another. After all, we all had that one friend when we were growing up who always seemed more comfortable in company of adults. That's right. The pair took to each other quickly. And da Vinci, who struggled with making friends due to his own superior intelligence, enjoyed Melzi's ability to converse on a wide variety of topics. Da Vinci wasted no time in offering the boy an artistic apprenticeship. And while many suspected that he wanted to become romantically involved with a young man, there is nothing to indicate that Melzi and da Vinci ever became anything more than good friends. Their relationship was never strained, however. In fact, their friendship gave da Vinci an excuse to lighten up. The artist was known for playing practical jokes on Melzi and his other pupils. Once, da Vinci constructed a large fake dragon using pieces of lizard skin, wax, and quicksilver. He blew into the creation to inflate it, left it in his workshop, and hid until Melzi and da Vinci's other apprentices returned. Upon seeing the giant, grotesque creature, they cried out in fright, causing da Vinci to laugh uncontrollably. <laughs> Leave it to a mind like da Vinci's to go to such extravagant lengths for the sake of a few laughs. It wouldn't be the last time either. Little did Melzi know he would share much laughter, misery, and adventure with da Vinci over the next 16 years of his life. A time span that was part buddy comedy, part romantic drama. Da Vinci and Melzi were best friends and spent most of their time together, engaging in deep conversation and practicing art. However, many speculate that the reason the ever-transient Da Vinci stayed in Milan so long was because he developed deep, albeit unrequited, romantic feelings for his protege. His devotion to Melzi and the respect he received for his work in Milan kept Da Vinci happily rooted. In his time with Charles d'Amboise, the governor grew to greatly admire the artist, and he soon introduced da Vinci to King Louis XII. Impressed by da Vinci's wide array of knowledge, King Louis sought the man's advice on many architectural matters, including military fortifications and strategic bridges. His work for the French kept him very busy, so there are not many artistic works from da Vinci at the time, but his scientific studies flourished. It was in this second Milanese era, from 1508 to 1511, that da Vinci and famous anatomist Marcantonio della Torre focused their attentions on comparative anatomy and physiology. Da Vinci had made a point to seek out della Torre at the University of Pavia after he read the younger man's popular anatomical textbook. He soon recruited della Torre as his research partner, and da Vinci was able to convince the other man to help him dig up bodies for science. The pair agreed to never divulge where they got their specimens, and fortunately were never caught by the authorities. Well, the men conducted extensive research on the subjects until Della Torre succumbed to the plague in 1511. Da Vinci pressed on alone and compiled their research into journals, many of which were written in Da Vinci's famous mirror script, 
or backwards writing that could only be read in a mirror or reflection. Many scholars suspect that da Vinci wrote this way not only as a way to protect his research from prying eyes, but because he may have been dyslexic. But as history has a tendency to repeat itself, power once again shifted in Milan when the French were driven from the region by the Papal army in 1513. This upheaval greatly disrupted Leonardo's studies, and it slowed his progress on St. John the Baptist, a painting of John the Apostle, and da Vinci's last known great work. At 60 years old, the man was weary of moving. Melzi kept his friend focused on the projects at hand, and it wasn't long before Giuliano de' Medici, Lorenzo Medici's son, invited da Vinci to stay in the bustling city of Rome. Da Vinci went to Rome not knowing what to expect. He had not spent much time in the city in the past, and he was unsure if he had enough connections in the area to elicit commissions. However, little did da Vinci know that Giuliano had arranged for da Vinci to stay at the Vatican with his brother, Pope Leo X. Giuliano had established a monthly stipend for the aging artist as well. Not a bad deal. No, but for the energetic older man, it was a difficult time to be in Rome with no commissions, while the other masters of the Renaissance were hard at work. Michelangelo was focused on completing Pope Julius II's tomb. Donato Bramante was constructing St. Peter's. And Raphael was painting Pope Leo X's new rooms. All of this was happening around da Vinci, and he was beginning to feel excluded from the artistic community. For a genius who had trouble relating to and making friends with other people, his art and research treatises were some of the only ways he could express himself to the world. What stopped him from making his own art? It wasn't so much that da Vinci couldn't paint or sculpt on his own, it was that he preferred to have the spotlight of a commission behind his projects. I suppose money and fame can be very inspiring. Still, he must have done something to pass the time. Well, like the good friend he was, Melzi again tried to distract da Vinci from his misery. He hated seeing his friend so upset, and so he chose to reach out to him in a way they could both understand, through art. Melzi offered to sketch his master, and da Vinci agreed. As a result, Melzi became responsible for one of the few depictions of da Vinci in existence. It is clear from the reverent depiction that Melzi held his friend in high esteem. During this time, Melzi also encouraged da Vinci to focus his energy over the next three years on studying his disciplines and writing. But in typical da Vinci fashion, the man decided to make his growing frustrations and disappointment at being relatively ignored in Rome the nucleus of his writing. Perhaps this period reminded da Vinci of his childhood as a bastard, when he struggled for attention amongst his many brothers and sisters. Mm, Not something one wants to be reminded of. No, and that is why, when King Francis I invited da Vinci to France in 1516, the aging artist did not hesitate. He completed St. John the Baptist and left behind his home country for the last time to become first painter, architect, and engineer to the king. In his service to Francis I, da Vinci drafted the plans for the palace and gardens of Romorantan, otherwise known as the Queen Mother's residence, all while battling a case of malaria. Perhaps it was his vanity, or perhaps it was his tenacity to prove himself again, but da Vinci would let neither old age nor sickness impede his work. In France, he did not have much spare time to paint, but he did design a mechanical lion figure with the capability to walk and open its chest to display a bouquet of lilies. He was also able to compile some of his most prolific treatises and write a series called Visions of the End of the World. 
The work speaks greatly to the growing pessimism he displayed in his old age. He served Francis I faithfully for three years until his death on May 2, 1519. Da Vinci was 67 years old when he died of natural causes. Melzi, ever the faithful pupil, stayed with his master until the very end. And because da Vinci had no children or heirs, he left the majority of his works to Melzi. The now 28-year-old was in the possession of some of the world's most important scientific journals and pieces of art. Melzi returned to Italy, where he married, fathered a son, and lived out the remainder of his days running his family's estate. Leonardo da Vinci, after an amazing life of discovery and creation, was laid to rest in the palace church of St. Florentine in Clue, France. Those wishing to visit da Vinci's grave to pay their respects are, unfortunately, out of luck. The church of St. Florentine was destroyed during the French Revolution, and da Vinci's grave can no longer be located. However, there is a memorial statue of the original Renaissance man in Milan. And where are da Vinci's major works today? Are they still in possession of the Melzi family? No, after Melzi's death, his grandchildren sold them off, and many of them have had quite a journey to where they are today. Let's start with the Last Supper. The mural was almost lost to the ages on several occasions. The first near destruction happened in 1499 when the piece was still new. After invading Milan, King Louis XII discovered the mural and demanded that it be removed and transported back to his palace in France. This never happened, of course, but nature is less merciful. The humidity in Milan caused severe peeling. By 1517, many considered the painting completely ruined. Protective measures were put in place to keep the painting safe from the elements, and several artists were commissioned to restore the work to its former glory. All of this so that the invading French troops of 1796 could hurl stones at the mural and scratch out the eyes of the apostles in an anti-clerical display. Another restoration was done, but on August 15, 1943, the mural's refectory was struck by an Allied forces bomb. Fortunately, all was not lost. A protective barrier had been built out of sandbags to keep the work safe, and while the building around it was mostly destroyed, the Last Supper sustained very little damage. Once again, it underwent restoration while the refectory was rebuilt as a climate-controlled space. On May 28, 1999, the Last Supper was returned to its original space in Milan, where visitors can see it on display today. The Mona Lisa, the Virgin on the Rocks, the Virgin and Child with St. Anne, St. John the Baptist, La Belle Ferronniere, Bacchus, all hang in the Louvre Museum in Paris, France, and millions of people travel to gaze upon them every year. Melzi's portrait of da Vinci is housed in the Royal Library of Windsor Castle in the United Kingdom. Whatever happened to the unfinished Battle of Anghiari? Unfortunately, it is believed to have been destroyed when Grand Duke Cosimo Medici I had the Council Hall reconstructed. There is an archaeological team that believes the Battle of Anghiari and Michelangelo's Battle of Cascina were simply hidden in the walls of the antechambers of the room, but there have been no developments with that theory since 2012. Hmm. Da Vinci's paintings and journals, often called codices, can be found in museums all across the world. In fact, there are over 6,000 pages still around today, some of which have complicated scientific information and others which feature grocery lists and jokes that da Vinci found amusing. Yeah, for example, in one journal, da Vinci began by discussing the anatomy of a fetus in the womb, greatly detailing scientific observations. 
He even included an extremely realistic sketch. Toward the end of the page, however, he paused to scribble a joke he called the painter's children. He wrote, It was asked of a painter why, since he made such beautiful figures, which were but dead things, his children were so ugly. To which the painter replied that he made his pictures by day and his children by night. He truly believed that science, art, and humor all went hand in hand. But the contrast between the da Vinci we know as a serious artist-scientist and the da Vinci who moonlighted as an amateur comedian gives us a remarkable glimpse at the very human side of a historical legend. And reminds us that da Vinci was a complicated, fascinating figure. For as little as we know about his life and experiences, we have all been touched by his legacy in some way. From popular books and films such as Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code to video games like Assassin's Creed, Da Vinci and his works are still relevant today, nearly 500 years after his death. And many of the machines and knowledge at our disposal today would not exist without Da Vinci's dedicated study and creative application. It's no wonder he's known as the epitome of a Renaissance man. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory, or through our website, parcast.com. If you like the show or want to learn more, join the conversation on our ParCast Facebook page or tweet us at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends. Join us next week when we'll be focusing on the life of Albert Einstein. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy and Joel Stein. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Jordan Giddens and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. 